This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hello, and thank you for joining the program today, where we're looking at Namkar Pell's text, Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun, which is a commentary of another text titled The Seven Points of Mind Training. Both treatises are on training the mind to transform harmful attitudes and actions into their beneficial and non-harmful opposites. We've progressed quite far in our text and have come to the part which discusses the measure of having trained the mind. This is presented in the seven points of mind training as a set of slogans such as integrate all teachings into one, primary importance should be given to the two witnesses, constantly cultivate only a joyful mind, and the trained mind retains control even when distracted. Over the last two or so programs, we've been delving a little into the last of these slogans, the trained mind retains control even when distracted. In his commentary, Namkar Pal writes, just as a skilled rider will not fall if his horse bolts while he is distracted, similarly, even if we inadvertently hear unpleasant remarks, such as accusations from hostile quarters, or we are criticized and mocked, as there are many who even criticize Buddha, the transcendent subduer, we should understand that it is undoubtedly the result of negative actions we have committed. We should, he suggests, be able under such circumstances to think, whoever criticizes me or inflicts harm upon others or similarly ridicules me, may they be blessed with enlightenment. When such a thought arises naturally in your heart, says Namkapel, that is the sign of having trained the mind. Let's look at what the Buddha himself said to criticism of himself and his teachings. On the website Wise Attention, there's an article titled Responding to Praise and Blame by the Tri Ratna teacher of mindfulness, Vishpa Vapani. The article looks mainly at the Brahmjala Sutta in which the Buddha explains how we should react to these two when we come across them. But before we go into what Vishvapani says, let's set our motivation for participating in the program today. I've said many times before that motivation is very important because it determines whether an action is negative or positive. So if we have a powerfully positive motivation, even if an action coming out of that motivation is not successful, the resultant karmic effect will be happy. Therefore, it's most important that when we do any action, but particularly a Dharma action like participating in the program like this, we make sure our motivation is the best it can be. And that means bodhicitta, the mind that wants to attain enlightenment to benefit all other beings in the best ways possible. This is a very vast motivation because it includes all living beings, and from a Mahayana point of view, it is the best of all possible motivations. So let's take a moment to make this our motivation. But if it is too much for you, at least think of your own liberation and enlightenment. Thank you. Now to Vishvapani. He writes, One day, we learn from a Buddhist discourse called the Brahmajala Sutta, the Buddha was walking from one town to another in the heart of the great empire of Magadha in northern India, accompanied by 500 monks. One imagines them walking slowly and mindfully, perhaps with their heads bowed, each holding the begging bowl that was one of their few possessions. 
and they would have walked in silence. Monks presumably like talking as much as anyone else, and there are scenes in the discourses in which the Buddha comes across monks who are chattering away. But in the presence of the Buddha or his senior disciples, the monks generally behaved themselves and maintained noble silence. Walking a little behind the Buddha along the same road were Supiya, a practitioner belonging to another sect, and his disciple Brahmadatta. Not long before, two other practitioners, Moggallana and Sariputta, had left Supiya's sect to become the Buddha's leading disciples, and Supiya was ill-disposed to the man he found walking ahead of him. All down the road, he loudly criticized the Buddha and his monks to Brahmadatta, and the boy defended them just as vigorously. That night, the Buddha's group pitched camp, perhaps meditating together in the darkness before lying down to sleep. But the silence was broken by the voices of Supiya and Brahmadatta continuing to argue. The next morning, a group of monks sat together to discuss the conversation they had overheard. From the account of their discussion that we are given, it seems that they didn't know how to respond, and what they say seems confused. Isn't it extraordinary that the Buddha is so great that different people respond to him in such different ways? They sound rather like a politician who is criticized from the left and the right and argues that this shows that their policy must be correct. At this point, the Buddha joined the monks and added his perspective. He wasn't interested in the content of what Supiya and Brahmadatta were saying, or even what that might suggest about him. The important aspect was the monk's attitude on hearing praise and criticism. Monks, if anyone should speak in disparagement of me, of the Dharma, the Buddha's teachings, or of the Sangha, the community of which they were members, you should not be angry, resentful or upset on that account. If you were to be angry or displeased at such disparagement, that would only be a hindrance to you. For if others disparage me, the Dharma or the Sangha, then you must explain what is incorrect as being incorrect and say, that is incorrect, that is false, that is not our way and that is not found among us. If we could all practice these words of the Buddha, the world would truly be a different place. When we are criticized, we feel under attack and defensive instincts kick in physically and emotionally. Our stomach tightens, our mouth becomes dry, our shoulder muscles tense, but we usually don't notice these responses and we often don't even notice consciously that we are feeling angry, resentful or upset. Our attention is drawn instead to the thoughts that spring up in our mind in response to the attack. The Buddha parodies our reactions in the Dhammapada. We think to ourselves, He hurt me! He abused me! He robbed me! I think you should repeat these with a whiny voice to get the proper effect. As anyone involved in teaching Buddhism in the West will know, the Buddhist view that anger should not be expressed raises understandable concerns among people encountering it for the first time. Does that mean I must repress my experience? I've been a doormat all my life and I need to be assertive and express what I'm feeling. The answer is in the reason the Buddha gives for not getting defensive. That would only be a hindrance to you. In other words, the emotional hooks that join us to emotions like anger also fasten us to painful and reactive ways of thinking and in the end these hurt us to say nothing of the people with whom we are angry. Another version of the problem of denial affects more experienced practitioners 
who can use this teaching to avoid saying difficult things. We may even hide our emotional responses from ourselves beneath a blanket of meditative calm so that we can preserve a sense of ourselves as good Buddhists. In fact, the Buddha's stress is on being honest and truthful, and presumably this can include honesty about our feelings. But there's a world of difference between telling someone that you're feeling upset and bawling them out. The Buddha is not saying that we should be entirely passive and simply accept whatever is thrown at us. He suggests that the monks should indeed respond to criticism, and he cites a case where the criticism is incorrect, saying that we should calmly offer a true account. <laughs> to be fair, I think this needs to be supplemented by saying that when we believe a criticism to be true, we should accept it and admit our, admit our faults. So there is a case for debate and disagreement among Buddhists and between Buddhists and followers of other beliefs. But the key is how you go about it. As one Western Buddhist teacher puts it, better dishonest collision rather than dishonest collusion. But reasonable discussion is better than either. The stoicism the Buddha advocates in the face of criticism might be difficult enough to accept and apply, but what the Buddha suggests next is an even harder practice. But monks, if others should speak in praise of me, of the Dharma or of the Sangha, you should not on that account be pleased, happy or elated. If you were to be pleased, happy or elated at such praise, that would only be a hindrance to you. If others praise me, the Dharma or the Sangha, you should acknowledge the truth of what is true, saying, that is correct, that is right, that is our way, and that is found among us. Not taking pleasure in praise is a stern standard. We all want, perhaps we need, the appreciation of others, especially if we are trying to keep going in a difficult undertaking, such as practicing Buddhism. And surely, offering this is precisely what the Buddha had in mind when he enjoined his followers to practice kindly or loving speech. But, as every flatterer knows, the listener's need for affirmation can override their awareness of the truth, leaving them to pray to forces that cause suffering. The key word is elated. The Buddha is warning against the tendency of the mind to appropriate praise to augment the prideful ego. It may be that we become swollen by applause, or it may be that we cling to it to stave off self-hatred. Either way, we are engaged in a skewed emotional response that preempts honest self-awareness. It is not that we should reject praise, just that we should not become attached to it. Once again, there is an important unstated corollary to the principle the Buddha outlines. If we receive undeserved praise for qualities we do not possess, we should put the record straight. In the discourse, the monks are not faced directly with superior's criticisms. They simply overhear the discussion, and this scenario offers the opportunity for them to observe the dynamic of praise and blame more dispassionately than if they had been involved in it themselves. It can be disconcerting to overhear other people talk about you. Although, as Oscar Wilde says, the only thing worse is people not talking about you. But it offers a chance to notice how you feel and find a creative response. I have discussed the implications of the Buddha's words for individuals who are responding to criticism and praise. But in the discourse, Supriya is criticizing the group to which the monks belong, and it's even easier to rationalize our defensiveness when our group rather than ourselves is under attack.
In fact, this is what you encounter when you open a newspaper, especially when religion is involved. According to the teaching in this discourse, there is no place for righteous indignation, let alone a notion like blasphemy, which Vishpavpani says is amazingly still a crime in the UK where he lives. He continues, Conversely, there is no place for triumphalism, the malaise within the Catholic Church that was identified by Vatican II, whereby one mistakes worldly success, that's grand buildings, swelling membership and so on, for spiritual integrity. It is reassuring that this advice appears on the first page of the user manual of early Buddhism, although it has to be said that both indignation and triumphalism can be found amongst Buddhists in both the West. Vishapani continues, When I read a teaching by the Buddha like this one sutta, it seems that I encounter a quite incredible reasonableness. On one hand, his advice is extremely simple, but on the other, it is very hard to apply, and I think the cause of this combination is that the teachings go very deep. Seriously undertaking to moderate our responses to praise and criticism is a profound transformative practice, as far-reaching, I suspect, as the most esoteric meditation practice. To achieve the degree of equanimity the Buddha proposes, we shall need a great deal of help and will need to consider aspects of communication that are not quite so simple as what the Buddha outlines. Understanding why someone may be criticizing us and empathizing with them, learning to distinguish facts from interpretations, learning to acknowledge our angry responses without being driven by them, and express, expressing what we believe to be true in ways that others can hear. But we can be guided in our more psychological concerns by the touchstone the Buddha suggests in the Brahmajala Sutta. Find what is true, as opposed to what we would like to be the case, and let that be our guide. That is the advice of Vishvapani, who incidentally is a Buddhist contributor to BBC Radio 4's Thought for the Day program. He is also a Buddhist teacher and author of the books Gautama Buddha, The Life and Teachings of the Awakened One and Challenging Times, an anthology of writing from Dharma Life magazine which he founded and edited until 2005. You can find the article and more about Vishvapani on www.wiseattention.org. I think we've now covered what is meant by the slogan the trained mind retains control even when distracted pretty well, having considered it over the last three or four programs. So let's continue with the next section of Nam Kapel's commentary, the irreversible commitments of mind training. This, he says, has two parts. The explanation of what appears in the text in verse, by text he means seven points of mind training, and whatever appears in the text as maxims. In explanation of what appears in the text in verse, he quotes the slogan, Always train in the three general points, which he explains like this. These are as follows. Mind training that is not contrary to the commitments, which is not led astray, and which is impartial. Now considering the first, mind training not contrary to the commitments, he says, we should never act in contradiction to the practices common to all vehicles, saying there's no harm in this because I'm training the mind. When we break some minor commitment, claiming that nothing else is required of a follower of a mind training. On the contrary, we should train in practicing the Buddha's teachings in its entirety,
from the instruction on basic logic to the Guya Samaja Tantra. In his commentary, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says this, The first general point is, don't contradict what I've promised regarding training my attitudes. We do this by following ethical self-discipline, refraining from the ten destructive actions and so on. Such behavior would contradict our training of our attitudes. From the beginning of the practice all the way up to the great Guru Samaja Tantra, we're not going to throw away any of these practices as that would be contradicting the commitment we have promised. And Dr. Alex Burson writes in his commentary, Don't contradict what I've promised is referring to when we have promised to do this Mahayana training, to train our attitudes and so on, to contradict it by thinking that we can ignore other types of practices, like avoiding the ten destructive actions, or there's no need for us to do anything physical like prostrations and food offerings and mandala offerings and things like that. We don't put down the other practices just because we say, oh, I'm doing this Mahayana training and I'm just doing everything to overcome self-cherishing but ignoring all these other things. Because actually, when we ignore them, that's also a bit of self-cherishing there. Well, I don't feel like doing it. I'm too tired to make prostration or trivialize them, mandala offerings and so on. So, basically, whatever we have committed ourselves to becomes part of our main mind training and we don't abandon any basic practices thinking that because we are now following the instructions and commitments of mind training we can ignore our other commitments. Then the second of the three general points is what Namkar Pal says mind training that is not led astray. He comments, secondly we should avoid digging harmful earth, felling sinister trees, stirring noxious waters, visiting those afflicted with noxious diseases without precaution or associating by view or behavior with those who are morally corrupt or possessed by spirits. And he quotes the morality of the Guluk tradition stemming from Atisha and going onwards to Lama Tsongkhapa. Both His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Alex Burson translate this instruction as don't get into outrageous behavior. Dr. Burson says, acting outrageously This means that we think that again, I can change all adverse circumstances into positive ones. So I can do all sorts of harmful things, like cutting down trees. And this is the example that is given in the commentaries. Cut down trees where Nagas live, and pollute Naga places and so on, because I am impervious to harm. Dr. Burzen explains that Nagas are types of half-snake, half-human life form. He says, it's in the animal realm, and there's many functions, But one of the things is that they protect the environment. So when you pollute the environment, and then all the harm that we get from pollution is seen due to the Nagas, so you don't want to offend them. It's sort of like in the American Indian thing, offending the nature spirits. But the thing behind it is not to pollute the environment and think, I can transform these harmful situations, I can live with the air pollution, and so on. Also, not be a hypocrite in the practice. We're nice on the outside, but when we're home, we hunt mosquitoes and take joy in killing them. We go on a safari with a pith helmet and the whole British outfit to hunt the mosquito in our room. I find that a helpful image when I start to get into that, how ridiculous it is. That's Dr. Alex Burson. So we have to be careful in our actions that we're not being careless again under the impression that because we're doing mind training, we are protected from outside forces 
by our ability to change bad situations into something beneficial. Talking about spirits in the environment, a friend of mine had one unfortunate experience with a naga or some such spirit force because he was a bit careless about where he urinated. He was in the rather extensive grounds at a retreat centre on the Coromandel when he felt the need to take a pee. Instead of going to the toilet, he did it against a nearby tree. Now it's well known that a spirit being lived on this property near some water and trees, and it was not at all that happy about its home being on the same land as a Buddhist centre. In any case, during the night, my friend, for no obvious reason, came down with a serious and itchy rash over much of his body. He went to see the highly realised Lama that was leading the retreat and was told that he had angered the spirit by peeing against the tree and the rash was a form of revenge. The Lama recommended doing a puja for the spirit and, if I remember correctly, some other practices and the rash subsided completely. Now this is the kind of thing that can happen if we do not take care of what we are doing or of our commitments. On the FPMT website, fpmt.org, Segi Rinpoche, a student of the great Lama Venerable Laiti Rinpoche, did an interview on mental and physical illness caused by spirits. He was actually asked, sometimes we hear that when we go into a forest and we need to urinate that we may disrupt the Nagas. Is there any protection for that? Segi Rinpoche says this, Just to be aware about the environment. In any environment, there are other realities that are interconnected. When you go to someone else's house, you knock on the door and say, Hi, how are you? Can I come in? Isn't that right? And you say, Can I use your bathroom? When you go to the forest, you can say, Hi, may I come into the forest? Please, spirits, I come in peace. Coming to your home, I just want to rejoice. They would then welcome you. This kind of attitude is important to avoid invading their realms. When lamas do the initiations, one of the first things they do is making an offering to the local spirits and say, please welcome me. First I am offering to the landlord spirit, the lord of the land. We are here to practice dharma peacefully. You may participate, but those of you who do not want to participate, go away. So, just be aware and enjoy nature in the same way. If you go and don't know what to do, then it will create problems. Here yeah, we don't have much of that, but in places like India, Nepal and Brazil, people make a lot of offerings in nature. You should not urinate or defecate in places where you make offerings. In India, they try to make the offerings in the same place. Since it has already been used for that, you put the offerings only there and not everywhere. When you move around in a city, you do not need to make an offering. What you, do, what you should do are quick prayers and mantras to multiply the offerings. Second, purify the environment. That is why people throw rice. The spirits enjoy it and rejoice. Sigur Rinpoche is then asked, even though you might go into the forest, say, with good intentions, do you still cause harm to the spirits? And Rinpoche replies, you have to understand that intention is the mental factor for action, and action is karma. Even though the action is wholesome, it could create bad imprints. How do we know? By wisdom. Good intention is not sufficient. You also have to have wisdom. Be humble and do the practice properly. In order of words, think, I wish all beings of happiness and the causes of happiness. 
I wish all beings are free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May all beings never be separated from their gurus. May all beings have a supportive community and offer to the three jewels. That will generate a positive energy to benefit their environment. That is much more natural than creating paranoia in whatever you do. So it's in this spirit that one engaged in the mind training is careful of the environment. We're advised not to be foolhardy and think that because we are mind training practitioners who can change adverse circumstances into the path, we can with impunity go to dangerous places and act carelessly. Not only may we come out in itchy rashes or much worse, we will probably harm either human or non-human residents of those places and accumulate some negative karma for ourselves. Then the third general point in the mind training commitments is to practice impartiality. Namkarpel says, Thirdly, we should be impartial about the object of our mind training, whether it is human or inhuman, friend, foe or stranger, superior, inferior or equal, or high, middling or low. This is because we should practice compassion without distinction towards all centered beings under the sky. Given that the disturbing emotions in our mind streams, the objects to be abandoned, are to be subdued, it is not sufficient to apply a partial or alternative remedy. We should train in understanding the way the antidotes are to be applied in general without partiality to the disturbing emotions. This is because all these disturbing emotions are obstructions to liberation and omniscience and are equal in dragging us into the miseries of cyclic existence. So, we need to be impartial if we are to have an unbiased attitude towards all. So it appears there are two aspects to this practice of impartiality. First, in our compassion towards others, we should not discriminate between friend, stranger and enemy. As the Buddha says in the Metta Sutta, even as a mother protects with her life, her child her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. And then the other aspect is not to be partial with the disturbing emotions. Being more lenient is in addressing one more than another. Like being ready to give up one's attachments, but not so willing to deal with one's anger, for instance. Dr. Alex Burson comments like this, The third general point is don't fall into partiality, which means to practice only with our friends and relatives and to ignore the people that we actually have difficulties with. If we're going to change our attitudes, we need to work with difficult situations and people. An example of partiality often used by Tibetans is that if someone in a superior position scolds us, we can accept it gratefully. But if an inferior does so, we get upset and angry. We usually practice patience with our boss because otherwise we might lose our jobs, but not with somebody in a lower position. Tibetans generally think it's easier to practice with friends and relatives than with strangers, and so we should equally practice with the two sets of people. Many people in the West, however, find it the other way round. We often find it much more difficult to practice with relatives because they annoy us far more than a stranger or our friends would. In terms of not being partial, of course we need to apply it in both ways. So that is what is meant by the three general points, and that is where we'll have to leave it for today, as our time is now up. Once again, thank you for being with the program today, 
and I hope you'll tune in again next week. Please dedicate as usual to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all living beings. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.